This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We have a special presentation this week about a very consequential figure in the state and the very controversial law he wrote. You're going to hear three episodes over the next three days. The story starts now. These are boom times in Colorado. Shiny new skyscrapers going up in Denver. Nearly 100,000 people move to the state every year. It has one of the lowest unemployment rates in the country. It seems like everything's great. So it's a wonder that some people in the halls of power are worried. We have one of the five best economies in the United States. We have one of the five worst educational systems. CPR's Rachel Esterbrook will be your guide in this story. There's a lot of money in Colorado. It just doesn't make its way into government budgets. It affects Colorado's kids and college students. Unless there are fundamental changes, there will no longer be public funding for higher education in the state of Colorado. In city halls, from Williamsburg in the south to Leadville in the mountains, life can be tough. I can't pay competitive wages. I can't buy new fire equipment. I can't pave my streets. All these fiscal problems get traced back to one thing. Colorado is the only state in the country where legislators don't have the power to raise taxes under any circumstances. They say it ties their hands, makes it very hard to do what they think the state needs. At some point, and I don't know when it's going to be, we're we're just going to have to stop funding some things. This was the vision of one man. Douglas Bruce. He was a regular citizen who led a tax revolution 25 years ago, a revolution that made Colorado a shining star for fiscal conservatives everywhere. Bruce led a campaign to give citizens more control over their government. From school boards to the state house. he thought Colorado would be better off if politicians had less power. I am a crazy man. I'm crazy about my country. And many say that the law he wrote, the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, known as Tabor, many people say it's worked. I believe Tabor was the best step towards freedom that we saw in our time. From Colorado Public Radio, this is The Tax Man. I'm Rachel Estabrook. Over the next three episodes, we'll tell you the story of how Colorado tackled head-on one of the biggest questions that we have in politics to this day what role government should play in our lives. We talk to people across the state, and we're going to show you how this experiment in citizen empowerment has changed Colorado. And we'll tell you the strange and sometimes unbelievable story of the man who started it all, Douglas Bruce. Stay with us. If you live in Colorado and know anything about politics, you've probably heard about Douglas Bruce. He's the most profiled guy ever. And to some people, he's a hero. To others, he's the cause of the state's money problems. And he can seem larger than life. At least that's how it felt to my colleague Nathaniel Minor and me as we worked on this story. Yeah, then we met him, though, and he's not. Yeah, I mean, we got to this radio studio in Colorado Springs, and then Bruce pulled up in his old Honda Accord. And he was pretty unassuming. He kind of looked like a grandpa. He was wearing those khakis, remember? Yeah, a plaid button-up shirt, gray hair. He's tall. He almost fills up the doorframe. Right. But 25 years ago, I mean, he was certainly a force. He would run these super public, controversial campaigns to limit taxes. 
And he's really smart, and he's not modest about it either. I know American history more than any average room filled with 500 people. Yeah, so what I most wanted to know is what motivates him? Why does he distrust government and politicians so much that he fought the government for so long? So what we learned is it goes back to his love of American history. Douglas Bruce actually quotes from the U.S. Constitution verbatim in conversation. The Constitution says in Article 28, and Article 6 says, I'm going to quote it verbatim, and that's guaranteed in Article 1 as a federal constitutional right. Right. One of his shticks is to call out people who don't know the Constitution that well. Like when he'd speak to the Chamber of Commerce or something in the campaign for tax limits, he'd quiz people in the room. What are the first five words of the Bill of Rights? And there's always going to be some idiot that says, we the people. I said, sir, we the people is not five words. After a little showing that people don't know squat about their heritage, I'd say the first five words are. There's this long, awkward pause because he wants us to finish the sentence. My face started getting really red. I haven't read the Bill of Rights since high school civics, probably. Yeah, same. But at least you gave it a shot. I did. In order to form a more perfect union? Unfortunately, we know now that is the preamble to the Constitution. Well, first five words of the Bill of Rights. What profession are you in? We're in the First Amendment business. Right. Here. The first five words of the Bill of Rights. Uh, I will burn it into your head. He pulled out a little edition of the Constitution from his front shirt pocket. By the way, it's signed by Clarence Thomas, the Supreme Court Justice, and Rand Paul, the extremely fiscally conservative senator. And Bruce asked me to read the first five words. Oh, right. Congress shall make no law respecting. That's six words. Congress shall make no law. Congress shall make no law. That's the answer. And we will never forget it now. That's a limit on government. That's what tax limitation does. It's a limit on government. You can't say you're free if the government can take away everything you have without your permission. So to Douglas Bruce, American history is one long struggle against the government and for personal freedom. And so he saw limiting taxes as the best way to do that. To Bruce, if you're paying high taxes, the government owns you. You don't own the government. So he wanted to use a ballot measure that voters would approve to take away politicians' ability to raise taxes on their own. But it almost didn't happen in Colorado. This tax revolution, it could have happened somewhere else. It's wild to think about now, but Douglas Bruce isn't from here. He's from Southern California. He graduated from high school at 16, law school by the time he was 23, and then started a career as a prosecutor in Los Angeles. But in the 80s, he decided it was time to leave. So he planned road trips all across the country to figure out where to go. A lot of people move here for the mountains, but that wasn't on his mind. So I looked at demographics and water supply, taxes. Of course. You know, climate and bugs and the economy and anything that I could think of. I'll be honest, I get the bug thing. The lack of mosquitoes here is pretty great. So on one of these road trips, Bruce comes to Colorado. He drives up Interstate 25. So I drove on, got to Colorado Springs after dark, stayed in a crummy motel on North Nevada. I woke up in the morning and uh, opened the 
door of the motel, and bam, there was Pike's Peak. Pike's Peak, the 14,000-foot mountain that inspired America the Beautiful. He finally noticed those mountains. And it's the moment when he falls in love with his new home, Colorado. He also liked the architecture and the commercial-free classical radio station. And he fit in with the politics. I like the fact that it had a reputation for being conservative. It wasn't No place is going to be conservative enough for me. But it was on the right side of the spectrum, literally. Douglas Bruce moved into a Colorado that's really different from what we know today. Colorado's politics were much more conservative back then. Republicans dominated the legislature, and the economy depended more on energy. This is the Colorado everyone knew from Dynasty. It was the number one show in America about an ambitious oil tycoon who lived in Denver. But that dynasty didn't last. Colorado went through a massive oil and gas bust in the 80s. And this was before Coors Field and the fancy airport that we know today. Downtown offices emptied out and it felt like a ghost town. The economy was shrinking, but what really made people mad at the time was government kept growing. There were some enthusiastic citizen activists in rural Colorado who were trying to push back on taxes. But they weren't having much luck until Douglas Bruce showed up to their meetings. I just spoke up and I didn't say, here I am, appoint me your new messiah. I mean, that's ridiculous. But that's exactly what he was to those activists like Diane Cox. And so here came Douglas Bruce, and he was an answer to prayer. She and her husband were peach farmers who ran a failed anti-tax campaign. Just after Bruce moved to Colorado, they were ready to quit politics. And others in the movement, like Fred Holden, worried that it would peter out. But Holden says once Bruce got involved, it was clear he was different. Then all of a sudden, we found out that he was working on it a lot better than the other people that were sitting around the table. Then we found out he's a lot smarter. Then we found out he was an attorney. Then we found out he was assistant prosecutor. Something else set Douglas Bruce apart, too. Colorado politics had a reputation for being polite and reasoned. But Douglas Bruce was aggressive, single-minded, in-your-face. To him, this wasn't about the details of tax policy. It was a battle for freedom that required every weapon he possessed. And to get that freedom, he wanted to give voters the power to raise taxes. He wanted to rewrite the relationship between government and the people and take away a lot of the power from politicians. That's when the politicians Bruce wanted to target got ready to fight back. More after a break. You're listening to The Taxman, a new podcast from CPR News on Colorado Matters. From Colorado Public Radio, this is The Tax Man. I'm Rachel Estabrook with Nathaniel Minor. We're talking about a tax revolution that started in Colorado nearly three decades ago. A landlord named Douglas Bruce had just moved to Colorado. He met some other anti-tax activists and told them he had ideas about how to limit government growth that he could write into a ballot measure. I simply pointed out what needed to be done, and they said, well give us a draft. He wrote the first draft on a typewriter in his dining room in Colorado Springs. And he brought it to one of their meetings, just plunked it down on the table. This was before Google. He came up with a nearly fully formed ballot measure to ask voters to limit taxes. 
Bruce was inspired by anti-tax godfathers like Howard Jarvis, who pushed a property tax limit in California. They showed that the ballot box, direct votes of the people, could decide big things. But Bruce wanted something even more comprehensive, because when the tax limits aren't, governments have found ways around them. Like in California. Property taxes there have stayed low since that ballot measure passed, but local governments found other ways to make up the difference. Yeah, so it's kind of like squeezing one end of a balloon. The part you squeeze gets smaller, but the other parts get bigger. In California, fees and sales taxes went way up to make up for its stagnant property tax revenue. Douglas Bruce wrote a measure that tried to squeeze the whole balloon. He didn't want government at any level to grow as fast as the economy. He wanted to minimize what government did in people's lives. Okay, so Bruce is done writing, the rest of the group is done tinkering, and they're ready to go to voters. The last thing they need is a name. And Douglas Bruce thought of this document as a new Bill of Rights that declares the unalienable rights of taxpayers to protect them from the reach of government. So, the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights was born. That's kind of a mouthful. Yeah. Fred Holden made it a little pungier. I said, I I like acronyms, and they shorten things, so it looks to me with Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, it could be called Tabor. So he said, okay, let's call it Tabor. Tabor. Tabor gets on the ballot in 1988. It's got the kind of catchy name. It sounds big and profound, Bill of Rights. But Bruce was largely on his own. He poured thousands of dollars of his own money into the campaign. And it wasn't enough. It lost big. On election night, Bruce sounded furious. And he did something that's really weird for someone in his position to do. He blamed the voters. Basically said they didn't know what was good for them. And when the tax increases come, don't bother calling me for a reaction. I'll give you your sound bite right now. Listen carefully. I told you so. It was a really strange thing to do, but put yourself in Bruce's shoes. The question he's asking is, why wouldn't you want more freedom? It made no sense to him that they voted no. Bruce thought that the next time, they'd get it right. So he didn't quit. Colorado was about to find out that Douglas Bruce never quits. He made some changes to Tabor and tried again. And it lost again in 1990. But the vote was a lot closer than the first time around. Coloradans were getting closer to saying yes to the controls over government that Bruce and some others wanted to see. And the people in power started to get scared. I viscerally and intuitively felt the ground changing out there. This guy, Eric Sonderman, ran those first two campaigns against Tabor and Douglas Bruce. In baseball terms... We had to get a hit every time at bat. Doug Bruce just had to get a hit once. We had to win every time. Tabor's supporters didn't say right away whether they were ready to go to bat a third time in 1992. Fred Holden, for one, he was exhausted. Well, we really did try. We tried twice. But Douglas Bruce was determined. And then he called up and said, I've got the next amendment started. Oh, my gosh, another two years of my life. (laughs) So ramping up to the 1992 election, Bruce got to work revising his message to voters. This was Tabor 3.0, bigger and better. And the people who were fighting Tabor this whole time, the no campaign, they realized that they were going to have to defeat this thing again. 
Bruce was more than just a nuisance. He was threatening everything they wanted Colorado to be. They were led by a man who has a radically different view than Bruce about what the state could do for people. Well, <laughs> my name is Roy Romer. My title is ex-governor, not, <laughs> not anything more than that. Grandfather. Romer was governor during the Tabor campaigns. He's a Democrat. In terms of ideology, he's basically the antithesis to Douglas Bruce. Bruce thinks that government should be as small as possible. And Romer believes government actually makes people's lives better. Romer had big ideas about what Colorado should be after the oil and gas bust in the 80s. He thought government investment was key to transforming the state and setting it up for success. Romer got that faith in government during his childhood. It was the Great Depression. His mom handed out checks as part of Roosevelt's New Deal. They were a savior in his tiny hometown on Colorado's eastern plains. I got to tell you, it was very, very tough in Holly, Colorado. And grasshoppers and fences totally covered by dust. Romer made a name for himself fighting for public schools in particular. His own economists predicted that if Tabor passed, schools would be devastated. They estimated with the first version of Tabor that schools would have lost more than $100 million in one year. Romer warned voters that Tabor was the most serious threat to government he'd seen in his career. In the campaign, he gave nine speeches a day at one point, trying to fight the momentum building for Tabor. And the campaign got heated. Bruce demanded Romer debate him. He would crash press conferences and shout questions at the governor. And apparently at one of these events, Romer's bodyguard grabbed him. So Bruce starts screaming, battery, this is battery. He kept calling politicians on the other side liars. Bruce and Romer were both zealous about their side of this argument. And having met both of them, I know they're still passionate now. And Romer's pushing 90 years old. But campaigning against Douglas Bruce isn't like campaigning against anyone else. A lot of politicians end up saying things that are very un-PC, things that can make them look bad and that they regret. Like this one time, Romer compared Bruce to a terrorist throwing a bomb into the machinery of government. Do you remember that? <laughs> I don't remember that, but I think that's probable. Uh, because I, I thought it, it, what he was doing was very dangerous to the whole structure of government. So Romer said he was just trying to do what he thought was best for the state. I saw this man who had a flame in his eye. He was passionate. He was over the top, really, I thought. And that's what would cause a terrorist comment. That's unfortunate. I shouldn't use that. But Douglas Bruce did not have a balanced view of what I thought was good for the society. Bruce had a weird sense of humor, though. So this is what he did after the governor's comment. So as a point of ridiculing him, I got a business card that said, uh, Douglas E. Bruce, terrorist. Like, he handed out a business card that said he was a terrorist. Until the Oklahoma City bombing, and then it didn't feel so funny anymore. So Bruce was building up a reputation as someone willing to take on the government, not just with policy, but with really public provocations. He was willing to do and say almost anything, like this one confrontation he had with Colorado's Secretary of State. She wasn't just another politician he didn't like. She was a gatekeeper for Tabor. She needed to approve Bruce's amendment in order for it to be on the ballot. And Bruce was convinced that she had it out for him. 
So her name's Natalie Meyer. And in 1992, several months before Election Day, she dealt Bruce's side a major setback. She said some of the signatures that they'd collected to support the campaign weren't valid. The Tabor couldn't be on the ballot. So Bruce held a press conference in Denver, just down the hall from Meyer's office. He's wearing a red tie and a little American flag pin on his lapel. Reporters are gathered around. The woman has obviously a mental deficiency. You heard me. You heard me. I thought you were leaving. At this point, Meyer's walking up the hallway toward Bruce and the reporters. The TV camera pivots to her. She looks very 90s. Plaid suit jacket, big gold earrings. And she's furious. You can see the reporters smirking like they've been waiting for this. It wasn't the first time Bruce parked himself outside of her office, but other times she'd ignored him. This time, though, she did not hold back. The woman has obviously a what? Now, as I was saying. A mental something. Doug, I think that you've gone a little bit ballistic. I think you need to examine whether your cause that you are saying you represent is being hurt by your verbiage And you can't really continue this, can you, without being in court? When I met Meyer recently, she said she probably should have stopped herself. But she didn't apologize for it either. And I thought, enough is enough. And whatever he said, what what about my brain? It was, I was mentally deficient. deficient. Well, I was a lot of things, but I've never really thought I was mentally deficient. This secretary of state was an unlikely opponent for Bruce. She's a Republican with signed letters from Ronald Reagan in her basement. But political parties don't really make a difference to Bruce. They're all part of the establishment, trying to raise people's taxes. Bruce ended up winning this argument. Meyer's staff re-examined the signatures and found that enough were valid. She let Tabor back on the ballot. So that's a small victory against the government. As much as Bruce's style could turn people off, it was working. And he was about to get a lot more help from things way outside of his control. More after a break. You're hearing The Tax Man, a special presentation from Colorado Matters and CPR News. From Colorado Public Radio, it's The Tax Man. I'm Rachel Estabrook with Nathaniel Minor. The tax revolution had picked up steam in Colorado going into the 1992 election. After two failures, Douglas Bruce and his supporters fine-tuned their constitutional amendment and their message to voters. They'd failed when they talked about limiting taxes. So Bruce didn't want people thinking about what less taxes could mean to their neighborhood parks and schools. In this campaign, the limit taxes message went out the window. I said... Well, let's change the bumper sticker. Instead of limit taxes, we're going to say vote on taxes. Bruce thought that was a much more positive-sounding message. He started to talk about Tabor like it's the return of the Founding Fathers. Tabor, he says, is about freedom and the kind of America you want to live in. This is about owning your country. Douglas Bruce would put the big ideas behind Tabor on these little pink index cards and pass them out on the street. Fred Holden, who worked on those campaigns, he still has one. What we believe by Douglas Bruce. We believe in limited taxes, not unlimited government. 
choice, not coercion. We believe in the supreme power of the people, not the special privilege of the politicians. Free enterprise, not state socialism. We believe in democracy, not bureaucracy. We believe in individual responsibility, not collective guilt. We believe in an omnipotent God, not an all-powerful state. It's time to declare your beliefs. It's time to send the politician a message they won't forget. It's time to stand up for America. It's so dramatic. It's just like the biggest language. It's big. <laughs> but the Taxpayer Bill of Rights that they were selling was more than just platitudes. It was more than 1,700 words of policy. So this is when we're going to explain some of the particulars of Tabor. All right, let's do it. Stick with us. It's complex. I mean, today, 25 years later, some people who are supposed to follow Tabor admit that they still don't really understand it. Okay, so the most important thing is that, yes, it does say voters have to approve every tax increase. It also says the state can't take on new debt, can't borrow money without voter approval. So that highway project that's going to take 10 years to pay off, voters get to decide if it'll ever get off the ground. And Tabor is very precise about how that vote should be framed. So when you ask voters for money to pay for something, you actually have to start the ballot measure with, shall taxes be increased by X millions of dollars? Or billions sometimes. Right. Douglas Bruce knew that doesn't encourage people to vote yes. Tabor also put a cap on how much money governments could keep. If they took in too much, they'd have to refund it to voters or ask their permission to keep it. And if the tax revenue went down one year, it couldn't just bump back up the next. Yeah, it really took me a while to understand why this part was so important. Let's say the economy tanked and tax revenue fell by, say, $2 billion. The next year, the economy recovered and tax revenues went back up $2 billion. But the state couldn't keep that money. They'd have to give it back to taxpayers. Voters didn't necessarily understand any of this because the campaign's message was so streamlined. You get the final say on tax increases. That's it. There was very little talk, even among politicians and editorial boards, about the rest of it. And one more thing. This was as permanent as a law could get. It would be written into the state constitution. And of course, all this was by design. Bruce told a reporter in 1992 that politicians' mouths would drop open when they understood what the law was actually about. And most of them wouldn't actually understand it until years later, when the economy did crash and the state government was in crisis. There are no unintended consequences. None. Zip. Zero. And they get very angry when they hear that, but that's too bad. I knew what I was doing, and, and I don't regret anything that's in there. I wish I could have put in more, but I had to make a calculated decision as about what would get 51% of the vote. In 1992, that was the message. Vote on taxes. Tabor supporters had other things going for them. They had more money than in their earlier losing campaigns when they got outspent 10 to 1. And more Republicans in the establishment had started to embrace Tabor. It was getting mainstream. But Romer and his opposition forces had hope, too. It wasn't just Democrats and their traditional allies lined up against Bruce. Whatever the impact might be, if it is approved... Here's a public radio report from the campaign. It has already caused many in the business and financial community to hold their breath. They thought Tabor would make it harder for Colorado to attract new businesses. Moody's threatened to downgrade the state's credit rating, so Coloradans would pay more interest on government debt. And that scared people. So that's the scene in Colorado back in 1992. Businesses lined up with unions and Democrats and other people that they'd usually be fighting at election time. And on the other side, you have Douglas Bruce and other tax activists and some Republicans. Just as important to this campaign, though, was what was happening outside of Colorado. 
Remember, 1992 was a presidential election year. George H.W. Bush against Bill Clinton and against an oil tycoon from Texas who ran as an independent. You got to take away Congress's right to raise taxes. Now, there's a radical idea. Ross Perot was a populist in a campaign that was all about the rough economy. He said voters alone should have the ability to raise taxes. That idea sounded familiar in Colorado by now. These boys are drinking too much. You got to take the bottle away from them for a while at least. Now, if they need more money, just put it on the ballot and let the owners of the country sign off. Perot obviously didn't become president, but he did very well in Colorado. His message worked here, and it was in the mind of voters as they opened up their ballots and considered how they would vote on Tabor. On election night, Douglas Bruce had his favorite meal, Chinese food with a fortune cookie. According to a reporter in Denver, the fortune read, You will make a change for the better. It was a good omen on a night when his hard work and sacrifice over six years would come to fruition. But the polls were really tight. Neither side was sure what would happen. Bruce got to the party at the embassy suites in downtown Denver around 8.30. So when I got there, people started applauding. And I hadn't heard the results on the radio. And they said, you know, it's now, we're, we're at 49%. Then the more conservative parts of the state added their results, and it was clear. Tabor had won. Bruce remembers the first words of his victory speech. The liars lost. The liars lost. The people won. The people won. Crowd went wild. What did that feel like? Uh, relief. Uh, vindication. Um, it was, uh, you know, if I die tomorrow, they can't take it away from me. I am a crazy man. <laughs> I'm crazy about my country. I'm crazy enough to believe all those things we were told in school about the consent of the governed. We the people. People in this hotel ballroom are wrapped, all eyes on Bruce. They'd waited six years for this party. We have taken away their crowbar, and for once, it is the politicians who got nailed. One member of the movement, Fred Holden, remembers talking to a friend the next day. He said, uh, Fred, how does it feel? I said, how does what feel? He said, how does it feel to live in the freest state in the nation? I said, it feels really good. Across town from the Tabor Victory Party, Governor Romer's staff woke him up in the middle of the night. They said a thousand people had gathered outside. They were mad, and Romer needed to lead them. But this wasn't about Tabor. It was about a different amendment, one that was even more controversial at the time. It targeted gay rights to make Colorado one of the most anti-gay places in America. And it probably helped Tabor pass because it distracted the opposition, all the way up to the governor's office where Cole Finnegan worked. Tabor was an afterthought. I, I remember, I'm sure I was surprised, um, but again, I don't think we had really paid as much attention to it as we should have. 
He says that partly because, as it turns out, Tabor's legacy has lasted so much longer. The U.S. Supreme Court struck down the anti-gay amendment just a few years later. The day after the election, Romer and his staff started to take a closer look at Tabor. And they quickly found those other parts of the amendment that we talked about a few minutes ago. The mechanisms that Bruce had built into Tabor to make sure the government couldn't grow as fast as the economy. They didn't like what they saw. Whether or not you can vote on taxes is the frosting on the cake. The cake itself is full of all kinds of crazy schemes and diabolical plans on how to limit spending and, in fact, to effectively dismantle government. And Governor Romer realizes that this little amendment is powerful enough to destroy his dreams for Colorado. I did a lot of good in 12 years. That was something I failed in to prevent that from passage. Maybe I couldn't have. Maybe nobody could have. But I, I look back on it and say, that's the worst thing that happened in 12 years that I was governor. Sorry I couldn't prevent it. Just a few years later, Romer and Bruce's fortunes both turned. The governor who fought Tabor and lost was more popular than ever. And Douglas Bruce became the one under attack. I'm sure that someday, sooner or later, they're going to figure out some way to put me in jail. I have no doubt about that. He was sure that he'd be put in jail. And he did end up in jail. Next time, we explore how things got worse for Douglas Bruce and how the state has fought back against Tabor. We pick up part two of this story tomorrow. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. Time now for Loud and Clear when we get your feedback. Recently, we talked about the legacy of Project Rulison. In 1969, near Rifle, Colorado, they detonated an atomic bomb underground to see if it could free up natural gas. The earth shook like jelly. There was a muffled sound. And rocks and dirt broke loose from surrounding mesas. In Grand Valley, a few bricks fell from a few buildings. The experiment was a bust. The gas was just too radioactive. Well, after our story aired, listener and fellow reporter Charles Buchanan of Denver tweeted us a historical footnote. As a result of Project Rulison and other tests like it around the West, Colorado voters amended the state constitution. The Colorado Detonation of Nuclear Devices Amendment passed in 1974, and it requires voter approval to detonate a nuclear device in the state. It passed with about 58% of the votes, according to Ballotpedia. In short, if you want to set off a nuclear explosion here, you have to get it on the ballot first. Perhaps you've heard that CPR News is telling stories of discrimination in Colorado. That's as NPR does the same nationally. And as part of that series, we visited one of the oldest African-American churches in Colorado, Shorter Community AME, which hosted a series of forums on race. When we visited, the topic was why white people must be more than allies in the fight against racism. They must lead. It just doesn't even make logical sense to me that the perpetrator of racism would be on the sidelines to end it. 
Uh, Our story resonated with Maya Whitaker of Boulder, who writes, As a mother and grandmother of biracial children and a black woman in a mixed relationship, I was deeply touched by the experiences and all of the personal stories shared in this piece. We continue to collect your stories of discrimination, no matter your race or gender. Head to CPR.org and click Connect. Colorado Matters is also focused on entrepreneurship in a new series called The Disruptors. Most recently, I spoke with venture capitalist Brad Feld about encouraging startups in rural Colorado. Feld is working with the state to develop a network that connects rural entrepreneurs to investors. After our conversation, Don Larrick reached out. He thought Feld was too optimistic about the likelihood startups would succeed outside of cities. Larrick is a land developer in Englewood who grew up on a farm. He writes, Inferring that a new enterprise could start in any rural community and thereby create positive economic development for that rural town, that's pure nonsense. Larrick says there are several amenities these places need to spur economic development. Natural ones like mountains or man-made ones like a golf course. He says a town also needs to be near an interstate or airport. In reaction to the same story, Brian Watson checked in to tell us about his efforts to build co-working spaces in small Colorado towns. He's co-founder of Proximity Space, which offers co-working spaces in western Colorado. In 2016, Forbes magazine ranked its Montrose space as one of the best co-working spots on Earth. Recently, I spoke with two survivors of the Aurora Theater shooting. They'd been in Las Vegas to comfort victims of the mass shooting there, part of an effort called Project Hope Baskets. Shortly after our interview, yet another mass shooting occurred, the one at the church in Sutherland Springs, Texas. So we reached out to Katie Medley, who helped start Project Hope Baskets, and she says they plan to send or possibly deliver themselves baskets full of supplies. But they're waiting for now. We know that people can get very overwhelmed. There's like a lot of people involved at the beginning and then stuff starts to die off. So we we try to give a little bit of space and then come in after maybe when it's a little more needed or um, helpful at that time. Her organization is also working to help victims of the Walmart shooting in Thornton and of the Halloween attack in New York City. Finally, in loud and clear, an update on a consumer fraud case we told you about last April. It was filed against the Colorado maker of a drinkable sunscreen. Iowa's attorney general argued it was phony and dangerous for consumers. Well, the company, Osmosis, just settled with Iowa for $70,000. That's loud and clear. You can always stay in touch. Go to CPRnews.org and click Connect. A while back, I told you about a song I just couldn't get out of my head, and it's still stuck there. Now there's a music video for it. The song is called Should I by Aram Ray. She grew up in Colorado Springs, and we're going to listen back to our conversation with her in just a moment. But let's hear the track first. She is about as vulnerable as a singer can be. He's headed over to the west side He said he'd be around midnight mm-hmm. 
Should I by Aram Ray, the Colorado Springs native just released a music video for it. I asked her to tell me more about this haunting song. It's just about what happens in your conscious walking around the house or wherever you are. For me, it was someone coming over and the thoughts that passed in my head about playing a cool or, or showing an effort. Sometimes showing an effort can be compromising, you know, or can be vulnerable. It can be vulnerable. It strikes me that even singing about the decision is quite vulnerable. What is it like to open up about that in a song that, you know, potentially millions will hear? I think we're all 
pretty similar, so it doesn't worry me at all. (laughs) 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 Whether we act like it or not is a whole other story, but I think people really care when it comes to someone else that they might care about, you know. I understand you wrote that song in about a half hour. Is that true? Mm Mm-hmm. It just came out. (laughs) just came out. My friends were making a track, and it was more um, electronic and um, beats behind it. And I was like, okay, give me the microphone, I have it, and then just sang the, the whole thing down. Except I changed the bridge, like the I just want to rush in part. Almost like a year later, but um, yeah, it just came out like that. That's the best feeling. I understand that you recorded it at a friend's house. There's actually noise in the background if you listen closely, which I have about a hundred times. Um, there's <laughs> birds chirping in the background and like some shuffling. It's not. It's not a quiet studio sound. Do Do you like that? Yes, I loved it. I I thought that I would edit that down or take some of it out and. It was just a one take, and um, it just worked so well. It just sat in its place, and sometimes you just can't argue with those things. Um, So I think the key a lot of times is to stay out of the way as much as possible, and this was just one of those magical moments. Do you prefer prefer it to being in in a, you know, kind of quiet studio? Um, It depends what type of music it is, but sometimes I can feel suffocating. Um, and in this case, it's like you said, it's so real and, um, the birds and all that, like that was just at my, you know, my friend's apartment and, um, it's, it's just real. It's just, it's just part of the story of the song. So an extra layer, perhaps of vulnerability, uh, even in the recording mm-hmm. itself. So, uh, Aram, mm-hmm. as I said, you grew up in Colorado Springs, and you say your parents were in a cult that saw secular music as sinful. <laughs> My dad's going to be so mad at this. Um, yeah, basically, it was just music was never um, around the house or in the car. And um, if there was music, it was at church. And to me, it was awful, tasteless, preachy music. And... Um, it would have been different if we were at like a gospel church and there was some soul to it. But yeah, it's, that's what it was. But for some reason, even I went to a Christian school, kindergarten and first grade, I was always put into the music programs. And I don't remember ever even really auditioning or something. It's just I was chosen to do those things in every school I went to, which was almost weird to me. But I just, to sing seemed like it was my past from kindergarten. You said your dad's going to be mad at you. Why? <laughs> oh, I, you know, people change. Life changes. So, yeah. No, it was just joking because I was excited to tell him to listen to this today. He's still in Colorado Springs. I understand your parents are no longer a member of this religious group. No, no, yeah. no, no. Mm-mm. They're not together anymore. But what, what do they think of your secular career? I think they're very proud of it. And um, it's an interesting industry, especially nowadays, to make a living being an artist in the music. Um, and I'm really, really fortunate. And um, so I'm just keeping going and trying to be better all the time and better writer and better singer. And um, 
you know, love playing for people. I think that's more church than most church, so. That is church for you. Yeah. I'm just curious, in those days when you were exposed really only to church music, um, were there, I don't know, pop or rock stars that you would sneak a listen to? Oh, yeah. Well, I I mentioned uh, Paula Abdul a lot because she was a dancer and singer, and she was also with that cartoon, uh, the the tiger. Oh, in the the music video, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I loved her. A lot of music I would hear from, one, oh, gosh, there's a song that my cousin listened to from like the Commodores or somebody like that. And like, from my friends, I would hear about people, you know, yeah. I was really not clued up to pop culture until I was older. That is singer-songwriter Aram Ray. She grew up in Colorado Springs, now lives in New York. She's just released a music video for her song, Should I? And I've just tweeted the link. Follow me at CPR Warner. That's our show for today. Remember, tomorrow, the second episode of our new podcast, The Taxman. It's edited by NPR's Robert Smith, music and mixing by Rumteen Arab Louie. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News. <laughs> <laughs>